0: There, folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian Gurman, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're making our way through the Book of Revelation. On the docket today is Chapter 5, and I think I mentioned last time, hello, the computer's ready. Did you hear that noise in the background? <laughs> okay, so the computer's ready. Uh, last time I think I mentioned that uh, Chapter 5 really goes hand in glove, you might say, with Chapter 4. Four and five together, a magnificent vision of the heavenly throne room. And uh, four focused a little bit more on the one on the throne and what's around him. I think the big deal there, the point, the kingdom is drawing near in the divine service. I noticed I made some connections to this language sounds like it's very grounded. This is a heavenly vision, but at the same time, revelation, as I keep saying, not just way up there and way down there, but also grounded right here, right now. In chapter five, a little more on the lamb, the one um, who's, well, we're going to see with uh, the one on the throne, but uh, this one focused more on the scroll and the lamb, and uh, it's a doozy. So I'm going to jump right in and read this, and uh, we'll go from there. Revelation chapter five reads as follows. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All righty. So there we have the text of Revelation 5. Anything uh, else that comes to mind, uh, keep this in the center of it. And that is, This lamb is central to how our God rules his entire creation. It's a magnificent scene, and this slain lamb is right at the center of it. So we've had the throne in chapter 4. Now we're going to have more focus on this scroll and the lamb in chapter 5. I love the language at the start of this, the right hand of him who is seated at the throne. Again, anybody who's anybody, first century Christianity, you're going to hear this language of right hand of him who sits on the throne, who's at the right hand of God, and that is his son. And so in the right hand, this is an amazing thing, right? In chapter one, the son of man in his right hand holds the churches. And the one who sits on the throne in his right hand, holds this scroll uh, that's very important for this and you get the sense then that it's like boy the one who sits on the throne sits at his right hand he acts through the one at his right hand which is Jesus this lamb he's got this scroll which is also at his right hand Jesus as what the scroll or the word made flesh and then that scroll made flesh if you will is what holding in his right hand the church? So we're in good hands, pun intended. A scroll written within and on the back, literally, it's um, it's what, yeah, within and behind or on the back, which brings to mind a couple things. Well, first of all, is the fact that we're working with a scroll, literally, a biblion, a book, a Bible. Um, before this, we've had that word only in the intro for write this, what you you know, see, John, in a book. We'll have the book of life, this notion of stuff being written down, uh, the word, the significance of the word. I don't need to go on and on about that. Faith comes by hearing, this word being preached, and so on. So in the hand is a scroll, a book. I just love the language, especially because of the divine service. We have, of course, the book, the good book, the Bible, the Biblion, right now, and we pray and uh, long for that to be opened up to us all the time, which is exactly what this lamb is going to do. So again, this is, this is a magnificent scene with this lamb, but also this happens every Sunday, a holy, sacred book with writing on it uh, being opened up by those who stand in the stead and by the command of the lamb. The writing on the front and the back kind of brings to mind the Ten Commandments. We're told that also. So the Ark, this kind of special dwelling place of God, is, I mean, God. where's God? He's everywhere, and yet he's present in his word in a very unique way. And so this scroll written on the front and on the back, I think, kind of signals toward that. Uh, sealed with seven seals. This is going to be a really big... Um, God is present in his word as his word goes forth, sealed with seven seals. This is a really, really important word in Revelation, this business of being sealed. Uh, We'll have seven seals here. Um, I think it's significant that this seal business, so this will come up in chapter 7. We got a seal, the 144,000, the believers of God have a special seal. It's a baptismal seal. And uh, this seal is also what? Seal is on the priests. The high priests have these seals. You can read about this in Exodus twenty-eight, twenty-nine. This It's a very liturgical thing for the sealing uh, language to happen here in this context. So there is, as it were, what? A book that's opened by those who have been sealed. A book that can only be opened by the Lamb. Seven seals. And we'll talk about that opening. And yet there's a sense in which, as we, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the ones... Uh, for whom it has been opened, or the ones that um, have it before them as an open book, as it were, are the sealed ones. It's a it's a huge play on words. We're we're getting ahead of ourselves, but in chapter seven, it's the baptized, the ones who are sealed, who will, uh, of course, benefit from this unsealed book that uh, that the Lamb will 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 accomplish here in this chapter. So John sees a strong angel, a mighty angel, proclaiming with a loud voice. Uh, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Kind of a big deal. This language of who is worthy. We've we we've seen that word. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God. Okay, but who is worthy to open this book, this scroll, and to loosen up its seals? It's the question, um, what, for all times and all places, who is worthy to open this up? The language of opening is very christ-centered christ stands at the door and knocks um he's the one that'll open john sees an open door in heaven later on we'll see the the sanctuary opened up the ark will be there the tabernacle will be there um the language is really what their eyes were opened on the road to emmaus Um, we're just not going to be able to see it. Like Jesus will even say to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and on the third day I'll rise. Um, But they didn't get it. Their eyes weren't opened or their eyes are held back. So this language of opening is very Christ-centered. It's what Christ does. Christ is the one who opens up his scriptures, his scroll for the church of all times and places. He's the only one that's worthy of it because he's the one that's fulfilled. Every last word of it. And so that's the question that's before us. And the reality for the broken humanity is what John reports that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to, not even in heaven, was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began and I and I weeped greatly, the Greek says, because no one was worthy found to open the found worthy to open the scroll. Uh, or to look into it that is the position of a sinful humanity realizing that this is a closed book to us uh, that this is ultimately this is a book unlike any other book and its content is made accessible to us opened up to us by the one who fulfills it by the one who is its very content brings me uh, to think of the very first verse of revelation the apocalypse apocalypse of Jesus Christ that is both he is both the content of this and the one through whom or by whom the content is opened up and without that word of life we weep greatly we mourn as those who have no hope that's what you go to a funeral and you see you know uh the absence of the gospel that kind of weeping that's the kind of weeping that's going on here until we have the proclamation of the one who can open this up, one of the elders who I really think is—I mean, I, I love this group of elders. I think is very ministerial. The language itself of elder is presbyteron, Presbyterian. Uh, you've heard of that before. Presbyteros, the elders. Um, I just think this is the message of the the message of the of the office of the holy ministry to the church of all times and places. Weep no more. Do not weep. Um, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, that's awesome. The lion of the tribe of Judah, now that goes way back to, like, Genesis language. Judah and lion, the 12 sons of Jacob, one of them is Judah. Through him, through Judah the Messiah, will come. So lion, and then root of David, now that's hundreds of years later, David. So we're being told two things. One, lion and root. Uh, Root, think like Isaiah 11, a root from the stump of Jesse, this root of David. Um, I love this language of, he grew up like a root out of dry ground. That's suffering servant. So all of a sudden you have this like lion from the tribe of Judah. Lion, roaring, strength, Judah, Genesis, way old school. And then Root of David, the root out of dry ground, the Messiah through David, put together here. So you have like the law and the prophets, you might say, put together here, has conquered. He can open the scroll. And between the throne, when John looks, he sees what? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, think about what has happened. With seven horns and seven eyes, John hears... The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, is conquered. He turns and he sees a crucified lamb. This is absolutely huge in how Revelation works. We saw this already in chapter 1. Word first, then seeing. This is the life of the church. We get the word first, but soon we now we see in a mirror dimly, Paul says. But we will see clearly. All right. John sees, he turns, he hears the lion in the tribe of Judah. He sees a lamb slain. Okay. And this is the reality of the thing. Um, In your eyes, the cross is what? Foolishness, uh, Paul would say, or a stumbling block. And yet this is the very wisdom and power of God. So the lamb standing is what? I mean, that's not a lion, that's a lamb. He is this powerful one from the tribe of Judah, root of David, is known most clearly by his role as a lamb slain. And yet standing, think resurrection, with seven horns, an instrument of power, full power. Wait, Christ crucified as the power of God? Wait, the lamb slain as the power Of God, absolutely, and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's because Christ sends the Spirit. I'll send you the Helper, the Counselor, the Spirit, who will point to the slain Lamb and preach the slain Lamb and bring to remembrance everything that the slain Lamb has has said. And this is totally, again, the office of the ministry. This is uh, sent out into all the earth. That's where the Spirit is active, We're wherever and whenever the slain land is being proclaimed. There also is the Holy Spirit working in and with and under that word to bring about faith when and where he pleases. Very cool stuff. We've got to stop for a break, but we'll be right back.
1: We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from our Christ in Every Word podcast. I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast.
0: Alrighty there, folks. We are back with our study of Revelation chapter 5, a fascinating text. We're going to keep moving forward. This business of the seven spirits going out into all the earth, I think that's totally ministerial, as I said. The word being proclaimed about the slain lamb, this as the scroll, is as the word is opened up. As the Spirit works through it, as it's preached throughout uh, all the earth, uh, then there is life and salvation. Weep no more, John is told. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, which is an amazing, this is the one who, it's his initiative, takes it from the right hand, again, all this language of right hand, I don't think anybody would have missed it. It's in the creeds. He ascended to sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Uh, This is how our Lord, it's not just some fancy, beautiful vision in heaven. This is how our Lord works, our triune God works for the salvation of people. Right hand, opening up of the word and so on. This again is happening every Lord's day when the word is opened by the ones who preach about that word made flesh, uh, who stand in in his stead and by his command. Okay, whenever or when he had taken that scroll, the four living creatures, which I take again uh, stands for like the whole created order, listen more again on chapter four, and the 24 elders, which is like, that's the ministerium right there, Fall down before the lamb. Now, last time it was what? Before the throne in chapter 4. Now it's before the lamb. So you get this The divinity of the lamb, okay, is coming to the fore here. They fall down. So earth and heaven falls down before the lamb. Wait, I thought that's what's before the one who sits on the throne. Yes, it's a both hand. Having each uh, holding a harp... Which is, I mean, this is kind of a fascinating thing. The harp will be mentioned later. This is the kind of thing, the proper response when the word is preached, music, worship, music, singing. We're going to see harps later as we go along. Um, And holding a cup of, uh, let's see here, golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Again, this is very much a divine service. The word is preached. Um, and I th- I love the language of bowls full of incense, which is totally something that you have in the tabernacle. Um, you have this incense, the altar of incense, also in the temple. And so these these are liturgical elements. These are things that are available also in Christian worship throughout the centuries, this incense that continues to be used here and there. And it's equated with the prayer of the saints, which is just another fascinating way of blending heaven on earth. Because in the book of Revelation, I don't know if I mentioned this yet, but the saints are sometimes those who are believers on earth and sometimes those who are those who have already received their heavenly reward. And so when John just says prayers of the saints, it's this kind of both and. And I love that because, I mean, the bowls of incense and this language of book being opened up and worship and harp and music and singing and so on, is this is all stuff that happens in the divine service already, right here, right now. And the prayers of the saints, just another way of blending, This it's in the divine service that heaven and earth are blended together, prayers um, from the one church that lives on heaven and earth at the same time you might say. And so all this really beautiful heavenly stuff of chapter five is depicted in ways that are like, wait, this is very much connected to us. Incense and book opening up and music and prayers of the saints um, of the church in both places, heaven and earth, and singing a song, a new song, which is what the, I mean, that's is there anything new under the sun? Who can truly do a new thing? A new song, as the psalmist sing uh comes from what the lord has first done for us oh sing unto the lord a new song for he has done marvelous things his right hand <laughs> right right hand and his holy arm have worked for him the salvation of uh, the victory okay so the the proper response i mean this is just a theology of worship right here the proper response to to the word opening up to the preaching Is music and prayer and singing in heaven and on earth. And you get all that here. You get all that again every Lord's Day now. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Notice we're singing. What's the content of our song? It's about the Lamb and what he's done for us. Sometimes Christian worship gets a little bit mixed up on this, right? It's more about what we're doing for God. This song that the church in both heaven and earth sings is the one about what the Lamb is doing. Worthy are you um, is the Lamb to open up its seals uh, because of what? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. This language of blood, by the way, is very rich. We're going to see it later on as kind of a Eucharistic. Uh, Blood, washed garments in the blood of his lamb in chapter seven. Yeah, blood. This Lord's supper blood. Um, I don't think any first century Christian would have missed that. The language, the uh, the uh, yeah, language of blood, where how it's used here in Revelation. Um, for you've made yourself. Let's see, ransom the people for God. This business of you've bought them back. You've ransomed them. Um, that's the language of. that's used here this like buying back you've ransomed them by your blood for god for every tribe language people nation you've made them a kingdom and priest to our god which is this is what from the very first uh, chapter we had this language of kingdom of priests we are both in this what we have royalty we also are are a kingdom of priests so you have this like Priest and king thing going on for God's people. Well, that's because what? Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, so go figure, that's also the language used to describe his followers. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, and by the way, they'll reign on earth. And I love the language of, like, this is heaven and earth singing about the current reign on earth. You might not look at, I mean, you look at the empty pews and you look at the church, you might think it's not all that great, and yet this is exactly how the Lord chooses to reign. He reigns in his crucified lamb on earth right now when that blood goes forth, when the word is opened up, singing and so on. That's how he reigns even right here right now, and that's also how his people reign. They reign, verse 10, On the earth, right here, right now, the church reigns. It is victorious, even when, you know, the 6 o'clock news makes it look like the downright opposite. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, a voice of many angels, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive uh, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There are some churches that have this in their divine service settings. We even sing this hymn, uh, especially around Easter time, some churches. This is the thing about it. Some people have even argued that this hymn, Worthy is the Lamb, these things, this is already what was being sung in Christian worship in the first century. And then John's just kind of, you know, kind of borrowing, as it were, in an inspired way, like, this is already what's being sung, or here's John sees this, and then it's the Christian church quickly borrows, like, hey, this is what we need to be singing. There's kind of a, I wonder, uh, a fluidity, some would argue, between the two. Uh, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, do you see what happened? It's like chapter Four, the one it's all about the one who sits on the throne. now it's to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see this is a very Trinitarian book we had the spirit mentioned earlier in several ways. This is like the Athanasian creed of the of the Bible. Um, I'll say more about that as we go along uh to receive blessing and honor and glory and dominion uh ages and ages. And uh, the four living creatures, all the created order say, Amen, what you said. And the elders fell down and worshiped, which is an amazing, like this earth and heaven group started the whole thing. Back in verse eight. And yet there is this responsive nature on behalf of the entire created order and all the office of the ministry. It's like, you know, again, we saw this in, in chapter 4. The liturgy is a back-and-forth kind of thing. Pastor to people, people to pastor. Now you got the choir to people, people to choir. And now you have this, you know, this back-and-forth antiphonal singing and speaking and so on. Well, that's the same thing that happens at a cosmic level with between heaven and earth. Um, this back-and-forth, what you said, amen. That's a in response to what you've said, we say amen. And sometimes it'll be... The church on earth cues something up, and everything in heaven says, Amen. And we'll see that in chapter 7. So throughout the book of Revelation, there is this antiphonal, this back and forth between earth and heaven. I just think it's beautiful. It's very glorious. We think sometimes, you know, I, my, uh, my loved ones who have died, are they watching over me and all these sorts of things and these questions and so on? Well, here's what you got to know, according to Revelation. I mean, you cue up a divine service. You find yourself in the house of worship on the Lord's day. Um, there you're going to have some back and forth with the church militant, the church triumphant, back and forth, the ones who have gone before us. Um, You cue that up, and you're going to hear amen, and they're going to sing, and we're going to say amen, and we're going to sing, and they're going to say amen, and and on and on. Great stuff. That's all the time we have for this particular podcast, but, uh, hey, stay tuned. We're going to keep pressing on with Revelation chapter 6 next time. It'll be fun. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian Gurman, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord.